More than 290 people have been killed across six states, more than 190 in Alabama alone. And meteorologists say they have not seen this kind of destruction in 40 years. The world warmed by 10 degrees centigrade over this 50,000 years. 10 degrees centigrade changes a world and kills a lot of stuff. On an unusually hot June day in 1988, NASA climate scientist James Hansen told Congress the Earth was warming and humans, not natural cycles, were responsible. Fifteen years from now, will you be able to look us young people in the eye and tell us you did everything you could to save our future? You are not doing enough! There's been little action in Congress, sometimes complete denial. The hoax that is referred to as global warming. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Build back better. Blah, blah, blah. Green economy. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, my name is Lemon McMillan. I'm here to host a show on climate change. The entire purpose of this is going to be to communicate and educate uh, on the topic of climate change and hopefully to be able to introduce people uh, who can um, teach me what I need to know and the public about this incredibly important issue. And today I have a guest, uh, David Z. He's gonna be joining me as we go about uh, exploring this topic together. How's it going? What's up, baby? <laughs> yeah, how are you? I'm excited to be part of this. Yeah. You you don't sound excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, uh, because something has to be done about this. And it's best when it's uh, people who are actually passionate about this, you know? And, uh, yeah, I hope so. But also, um, I'm, I'm here to get myself educated as well, because I'm not an expert. I do know a lot as far as being a layman is concerned, but... Um, having the opportunity to be able to talk about this on a radio show um, should be a pretty powerful way to go about learning what it is that I and the general public need to know about this subject. And one of the things that I like about the idea of doing it on a college campus is hopefully being able to talk to young people about this issue and about what it means to them, what they've heard about it, get some anecdotal stories from them, and also um, to be able to talk about organizing and ideas that they may have and passions that they may have about it, as well as dealing with the whole card, the, the cold, hard facts of what we're up against. But anyway, the name of this show is called The Great Filter. And, I, and that name comes from uh, the Fermi Paradox about why aliens aren't talking to us and why can't we find any alien civilizations. And out of a, a number of different reasons that super smart people have pondered this question, um, one of them is called the Great Filter, which is to say that there is something in the universe that can destroy or kill off a civilization before it gets the chance to say, hi, earthlings. You know, and one of the one of the uh, ideas here is that we are either in front of the great filter, which means that we're going to hit this thing that destroys us, or it's behind us and we just got through it. Anyway, I like the idea and the concept, and I consider uh, climate change to be uh, a pretty big filter. So we're going to call the show the Great Filter in honor of uh, that concept. But anyway, I thought it would be important for us to start at the beginning. Like, why is it that climate change is even a subject that needs to be talked about? You know, what is it? Why 
do we feel it's necessary to even have a show about it? You know, well, I think we need to start at the beginning of like, what is climate change? And set that as a premise so that later in future shows, we can just dive into all the deep, gory details. But first, we start with this. What is it? How do we know? And then let's go from there. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that is the best point to start. The uh, Because a lot of people may not be aware of the history of this. If you're not aware of the history, you're not going to be able to react to the propaganda that is being spread about it. Okay, I figured we'll start at the beginning. And with this subject, the beginning is in the 1820s. There's a French, a French mathematician and physicist who's thinking about mechanics and equations governing heat transfer. This is Joseph Fourier. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because I can't speak French, but hopefully I didn't butcher that. But anyway, Joseph, he wanted to know, after calculating how much energy from the sun hit the earth, he realized that the earth should be a lot colder than it is. He estimated the earth should be um, 60 degrees cooler than it is, which that would make the whole planet a giant snowball. It would be a giant ball of ice. But it wasn't. And he wanted to know why. So in 1824, in a paper he wrote, he stated that it must be the atmosphere, that it has to be creating a barrier that traps heat. He also hypothesized that heat could change depending on natural processes of the planet and the progress of human society over the long term. You know, uh, but he didn't know how this process worked. But that's a that's a pretty big step in that direction of understanding that, well, the atmosphere must have something to do with it, right? When you look out in space, space is a scary-ass place, man. I mean, it's it's cold, it's dark, it doesn't, it hates life, it seems like. It, it's not a place that it seems conducive to actually having things living on it, hanging out, having a good time. But on Earth, we're having a real good time and we have all these conditions for life and trying to figure out why we do. I love the fact that Joseph Fourier is is trying to find out like, well, shouldn't we be colder? Why aren't we colder? And putting it together going that it must be the atmosphere. The atmosphere must be trapping heat. But like I said before, um, he doesn't know what that process is. All right. And so, but he's, he's starting the ball to roll. You know what I mean? So what ends up happening is that in later, another person comes into play by the name of Eunice Newton Foote, a woman and an American amateur scientist in 1856. She finds the answer. She took several glass cylinders put a thermometer at the bottom of each of them and filled them with different gas combinations from very thin air to very thick air, humid air, um, air with carbonic acid or uh, CO2, carbon dioxide in it. And then she took these, these glass jars, cylinders, and she put them in the sun to allow the sun to heat them up. And then once they heated up, she then took them and put them in the shade to cool them down. And then she went and checked to see how the temperature change uh, would occur in each one of the jars, in each one of the cylinders. And what she found is that the, the cylinder with CO2 and water vapor in it became hotter in regular, air, in regular air and kept that heat longer in the shade. In effect, she had just discovered that water vapor and CO2 were heat-trapping gases. She nailed this. This is now you have a big deal now. Now you know that these two gases, water vapor and carbon dioxide, actually trap heat. And uh and since that's in our atmosphere, that's giving the answer to the fact that to uh Fourier's question, like, well, what is it? He he had the atmosphere is trapping the heat, but he didn't know what the process was. Now Eunice actually lays out 
Well, uh, water vapor and uh, carbon dioxide are actually trapping the heat. And so that's a, that's a pretty big deal. This is actually noted to this day as the first experimental work in climate physics. All right. In 1856, she wrote up her findings in the American Journal of Science. And she basically said what happened in, those, in that CO2 jar could happen to this planet. And to give a, an exact quote, an atmosphere of that gas would give Earth a high temperature, unquote. You know, so here you got a woman back in the 1850s who just figured that out. It's funny how there's a bunch of guys right now who don't even believe that's true, you know. <laughs> and I would love, they're probably really insecure dudes, and I'd, I would love to tell them, like, by the way, do you know a woman is, uh, is superior to your intellect? A hundred years ago, she figured this out uh, better than you could. Whatever. I mean, who are these climate deniers right now? I would love for this woman to be alive and talk to, like, I don't know, Newt Gingrich or, you know, Donald Trump. Could you imagine having Donald Trump having a conversation with a woman of this caliber intellect? Whatever. He'd probably drool on himself. Wouldn't even know what to say. All right. But anyway... She presented her findings to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, one of the most prestigious scientific gatherings in the country. It sounds pretty prestigious, right? But they wouldn't allow her to speak because women were not allowed to speak. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I know I can't say it on the radio, but WTF? Really? So she can make this incredible discovery, but she can't talk about it? That sounds insane. But when you think about it, 1856, I mean, they were still whipping slaves in 1856. You know, they were still genociding native people here in the United States in 1856. So I guess it makes sense that even a white woman of this caliber of intelligence will be told to just shut up and go make me a sandwich. You know, but anyway, the person who did read her, um, who women were actually allowed to read their own studies at this place but it was rare all right women were allowed to even be in this group but that was also rare you know so the person who read her uh, her report is actually one of the founders of the of the Smithsonian Institute so that's kind of cool that somebody of that caliber would read your work um and so this male colleague of uh read it and then she was forgotten about, you know, f like for more than 100 years. Nobody ever brought her name up again about any of this. You know, the only reason we know about this woman is that because 10 years ago, uh, her work was rediscovered. And people found out that she was the one who actually first identified carbon dioxide as a heat trapping gas. So, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the movie uh, Alien. Have you ever seen that movie? No, actually, no. You haven't seen... Have you seen any of the Alien movies? I know all the lore behind it, but not... You know the thing that grows inside of you? It's really... It, it comes out of your stomach? Yeah, and it's really gross and... Okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to tell you this real quick. But in the first movie, um, a, a boarding party runs into the alien. An alien uh, attaches itself to somebody's face. And so they come back to the ship... To be like, hey, let us on the ship because this thing grabbed one of the one of our people and we need to help him and take him to the infirmary. And uh, Ripley, who's played by Sigourney Weaver, uh, a woman, she's like, nah, nah, you're not bringing that thing on here. Are you kidding me? You could kill everybody if that, what, what if that thing's contagious? I mean, what if it's like, I don't know, like uh, COVID or something, you know, which is a good analogy. Don't bring that crap in here you guys gotta stay and they're like if we stay out here we're gonna die like but if you bring it in here we're all gonna die and then what happens in the movie is that some dude is like you know overrules her and lets everybody in you know what i mean and then what happens for the next three movies everybody dies because they didn't listen to this one woman who tried to tell them what is it with men where they don't listen to a woman i mean we all have to start off listening to our mother right I know my mom said some crazy stuff that I didn't want to hear, but I had to, and I had to do it, and sometimes she was right. You know, I mean, anyway, I'm going off, sorry. But the deal is, is that I get the feeling with, with uh, Eunice, she's sitting here trying to tell you about, you know, the climate, and 
nobody remembers that she did. But anyway, uh, of course, uh, about three years later, a white man grabbed the spotlight on climate uh, science, and his name is John Tyndall. He's an Irishman. And Tyndall is another physicist. In the 1850s, he made a series of experiments to try and figure out what gases could be heat trapping. Sound familiar, right? Foote, of course, had already friggin' figured this out, and he rediscovered water vapor and CO2 could trap heat. He found CO2 could trap heat a thousand times as much as dry air, and he was stunned by that. I was kind of stunned by it when I read it. A thousand times? That's insane. But in the process, of course... Now, he had to do like calculations, um, some very sophisticated calculations to go through all of this. And he repeated his experiments hundreds of times just to make sure that he got it right, like literally hundreds of times. And in 1861, in a lecture, he described his results. And everyone trips out how so little CO2 it takes to heat things up. You know, it, it only, we talk about it in parts per million because that's how strong it is as a heating uh, heating element. But anyway, Tyndall is famous for his explanation of why the sky is blue. I didn't even know that. This guy's a heavy hitter. Do you know why the sky is blue? Give it to me. No, tell me. Take a guess. This okay. is kind of fun. Uh, it's got to be the reflection of the sunlight because it reflects on the atmosphere. Something like that. Well, that's not bad. Well, it's called the Tyndall effect. And when sunlight passes through the atmosphere, the light is scattered by small particles that are suspended in the atmosphere. And that's what gives you the blue. That's like all that water vapor and whatnot. The light is being scattered around. That's what I said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, is that you didn't do any hardcore physics. So how did you know that? Because <laughs> I didn't necessarily know that. The blue light we see is also called the Tyndall blue. So... They called the sky uh, Tyndall Blue after him acknowledging the process of, of what this is. Now, this guy is so well regarded and so famous that he, that in Cork, Ireland, there's a Na Tyndall National Institute, and it was established in 2004. You know what I mean? So he's highly regarded. He did it. One of his things he used to like to do is you ever heard of seances? where people would talk to the dead and, and all of that. Like, he would use science to show how stupid that is and how it's not real. It used to be a really big deal. Everybody was into it. Mm -hmm. There were people that you would pay, you know, to come talk to your dead aunt or relatives or whatever it was. And um, there was kind of a, a business of it going on, and people were heavily into it, and he used to go out there and just beat them up with science. Just That must have been fun. You know, telling people that your delusions are delusions, you know. I don't know. But anyway. Well, people, sometimes people react in a very, very bad way. So if you like confrontation, then yes. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's good to try to keep people from being too kooky about their beliefs to the point of where they don't even believe climate change is real. We'll get to that later, though. I mean, I guess that's kind of harmless as opposed to talking to... Uh, in comparison, it's harmless talking to your dead relatives as opposed to denying that the planet's biosphere is being killed. That's a little different. But anyway, of course, nobody named uh, Jack after Eunice Foote. You know what I mean? She had already established water vapor and CO2 were heat-trapping gases before this guy, three years before this guy. In later writings, he said he had never heard of her. And there's a thing with historians like, is he lying? Did he rip her off? And did he rip off her studies and then claim it as his own? I mean, like I said, she beat him to the punch by three years. He is currently viewed as one of the founders of climate scientists or almost like the father of climate science, right? Well, can we have a mother of it too? He actually published a paper on color blindness in the same issue of the American Journal of Science and Arts as her paper on climate change. 
So how did he not know who she was? I don't know. But people, in the research and reading for this, I found out that Europeans didn't really think too much of American physics physicists, you know, because most of the climate action was going on in Europe. Most of the scientific hardcore discoveries around stuff were happening in Europe. And nobody really had that much respect for the United States, you know, scientific proudness at the time. At least that's the impression I got from reading it. And it's also, they didn't have internet back then. So it wasn't like he could find out or Google her and figure out that she had done this three years before. So he may not have actually known that she had done that or whatever. But I just think it's important that this lady get credit for one of the most important discoveries in the history of our species. And it's oh, probably because they thought that she's a woman who still has to be verified by a man, you know. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, there's no doubt that the fact that she was a woman is the reason why we didn't hear anything else about this. I mean, it, I mean, you could tell me like, well, you know, there's lots of reasons. Yeah, okay. But this is like, like I said, this is in the 18, what is it? His, his paper comes out in 1861. You know, the Civil War is about to jump off. You know, they still don't, Americans are so, are so backwards that there's a big population of them that don't even believe black people are fully human. You know what I mean? So it makes sense that they would also treat a woman like less than a human being. Yeah. Well, anyway, we skip along, and now we get to 1896. And a guy who I love pronouncing his last name, it's Arhenius. I cannot pronounce a Swiss first name to save my life, but it's Savanti, S-V-A-N-T-E. I'm sure... I hope any Swedish people, I am not offending the hell out of them with my inc- my incorrect pronunciation. But um, Arrhenius is a Swedish physicist. And he was trying to figure out what was causing ice ages, how CO2 could do so, and how much CO2 it would take to alter the Earth's temperature. And thanks to some important work done by other scientists, and a guy named Hogboom, once again, I'm probably horribly pronouncing that name he published how much co2 existed throughout history on the planet and then another guy named samuel pierpont langley samuel pierpont langley who invented a highly precise thermal detector that he used to measure how much energy the atmosphere allows through and how much it stops from leaving which sounds like a pretty handy little instrument to have in climate science and he uh these two guys, having pursued these those two points, Arrhenius got this together and started calculating how much heat would be trapped if CO2 and water vapor amounts changed. Once he finished his calculations, he made an incredible prediction. All right, And remember, this is 1896. This is before supercomputers. He's doing all of these calculations by hand. I understand that he was doing like 10,000. I saw another one that said up to 100,000 calculations. Um, Like, I mean, he, he must have been going crazy having to do all of that level of work. But he found out if you doubled the amount of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere, it would raise the world's temperature by five to six degrees Celsius. All right, which what's crazy about that is that we have computer programs and they spent millions of dollars and state of the art supercomputers when he was doing, you know, handmade calculations and he was incredibly accurate. Our computers show that he was right around that area. And uh, and to this day, it's officially noted that this guy was basically operating up the first climate modeling. Like he was putting calculations together on how much CO2 go into the atmosphere and what the outcome of that would be, which is what we try to do with computer models to find out where we're going when we put too much you know, CO2 in the atmosphere. And, but here's the weird thing, and I keep finding this, all right? These guys didn't think it would be bad. <laughs> you know, they were like, I mean, I guess especially... Because then increasing the temperature of the planet could actually be good. Well, if you're in Sweden, I guess, is that, wouldn't that make sense? Like, because it's, it's cold, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, oh, wow, if we just, if we did that, 
we would have more fertile areas and I could work on my tan more and oh my God. you know and these guys these are some of the smartest people in their time periods right but I'm really lost personally on isn't that kind of dumb to think that I mean well they didn't have all the information too you know like they were not thinking about all the insects and the flowers what do they need so yeah but wouldn't I would think as a scientist wouldn't you understand at the very least that there could be a bad effect from that not to say that it's it would be a bad effect because you might find out through science that it's going to be a good effect but also wouldn't you temper that with that could possibly be bad like you don't know so you can't say like well I think that'd be pretty cool I mean like for instance check this out all right uh are Arrhenius believed it would take 3,000 years for levels of CO2 in the atmosphere to rise by 50%. Okay, because he's in, this is in 1896, so the Industrial Revolution has already started, and we're already putting CO2 in the atmosphere, right? But he thinks that it's, we're not going to put that much in, and that it would take 3,000 years for us to add 50% more, you know? But here's the problem. Because we actually shot up to 30% CO2 in just 100 years. These guys, I, I don't, they couldn't see and possibly, and it's, it's not their fault, I, I don't think. They couldn't imagine the world that we have today that would have billions of people on it and everybody would have a cell phone and we would be completely decimating the planet because of capitalism to make more and more money. You know, back in his day, it probably was small and felt small you know what I mean mm -hmm. but still like this is a theme I keep coming across where climate scientists are making these discoveries and finding out um, about it and then they're like oh this will be nice you know I can put on my shorts I don't have to move to Hawaii I can just hang out here in Switzerland and it'll be sunny and beautiful and god how wrong they were <laughs> Just, it's also the, it also depends on what kind of scientists they are. If they are like just very heavily based on science, and then they have science that says that this is gonna affect other things, they are gonna doubt about it. Like they don't see the whole picture itself. Yeah, yeah. And one thing about scientists, since they're people, there's good ones and there's bad ones, and they're all human. I shouldn't be making any of these pronouncements. Uh, because it's not fair in their time period. I don't. It it may yeah. make sense in their time period. Yeah. You know. But um. But hopefully, they get over this fast because this is not going to end well. There was a debate going on though, um, with mainly with the Europe guys, in climate circles on if humans could even put enough carbon in the atmosphere to make any difference or not. You know what I mean? So there were some people who were saying like we could put a little bit in there and it might make a little difference and other people were saying that we can't put enough in there to possibly make a difference. And the only way that you could know is that you would have to have precision measurements on the amount of carbon that was actually going into the atmosphere. Nobody knew that at the time. All right. And then one day a guy who's literally named Guy his name is Guy Stewart Callender. Um, he argued that in, an increase in CO2 was already occurring in the 1930s. And in 1938, he suggested temperature might be increasing uh, with it. You know. Mm -hmm. Now, this guy's interesting because he's not even a physicist. He's, he is a, uh, and he's not even a climate scientist. He's a steam engineer. You know what I mean? And and again, this guy thought that this would be good. And, and his idea was that it would delay the ice ages. You know what I mean? Because we knew that ice ages come and go and come and go. And like right now, we're living in the Holocene, which is this period in between the last ice age, which is about 12,000 years ago. You know, our entire history of modern civilization is in between these ice ages. 
because every, I think it's about every 100,000 years or so, there's an ice age that comes and giant glaciers form and everything gets real cold and stays that way for thousands of years. And then it fades away and there's this period of time that exists between the ice ages. And so these guys were like, well, if it heats up enough, we won't have any ice ages anymore. And that'll be cool because who, you know, who wants to worry about a giant glacier burying their country? And, you know, it's almost like they, they were so marveled by the power to change the planet that they thought that any of this could only be good. You know, like this power must be good. Yeah, well, you know what it reminds me of? Because I don't know if this is fair. Again, I don't even know if this is fair or not. But I wonder if they had talked to an indigenous person, like an aboriginal oh. person or, you know, um, a Comanche or somebody from that exact time period and told them this. And they would have said, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I, I got a feeling that the Comanches would be like, that would change things. And because they're in tune with nature, I think, and I'm just... I'm just proposing this. I don't know this to be... I'm going to ask, actually. I'm going to ask some of my native friends this question. Um, what they think, like their ancestors would have said if the white man had come and said, yeah, we're going to change the climate and things are going to get warm. And the, you guys in Alaska, you know, you don't have to worry about the snow anymore. You can just have shorts on all the time. Like, what would they say to that? Because I bet you they would immediately be like, that'll be awful. You, right? <laughs> That would be terrible. What's going to happen to my, my igloo? You know? What about those awesome snowball fights we used to have in school? You know? What the hell are the animals going to do when there's no snow? It just seems really weird to me that these super, super smart people were thinking of comfort in that level. Okay, well, anyway, World War II comes around, and so nobody can really talk about anything other than trying to kill Hitler's ass for the next, you know, like, I mean, pretty, like, many of some of the most prominent scientists in the world were involved in either, you know, uh, helping the Nazis or trying to help defeat the Nazis. So you didn't really have much time to be talking about climate change or, or climate studies or whatnot. But after the war, um, here's a, something that I learned from a uh, podcaster by the name of uh, Robert Evan. He gives you really good information. And one of the things that he, he talked about that I had no idea, because uh, I haven't seen this anywhere else in terms of trying to read and research for this, that in 1959, Edward Teller told a gathering of oil industry people because it was the 100th anniversary of oil in America, right? They, oil had a birthday. <laughs> Who knew? You know what I mean? And, and all the oil executives had a, uh, like a, I don't know if it was a party or a meeting or whatnot, but, you know, celebrate the 100 years of making... Sherry cake. Yeah, making oil. And one of the guest speakers, I, he might have even been the prominent speaker or whatever, was uh, Edward Teller. And Edward Teller sat up and instead of like giving a speech that you would think you know like you know a fine speech about oil and how awesome it is and the you know here here toast the oil you know what i mean he goes up there and basically tells everybody like um oil is terrible and we need to get off of this and we can't stay on this i mean he acknowledges that like it's good and it's useful mm -hmm. but he's like we have to supplant this with something else and he specifically tells them um that this causes you put he uses the word contaminate and he says that burning fossil fuels would contaminate the atmosphere with carbon dioxide all right and he told them that this causes the greenhouse effect he used that exact phrase and a temperature rise corresponding to a 10 percent increase in co2 would submerge new york and every other coastal city in the world he told them that this is 1959 right and and here's the this is the thing that you have to understand. Um, Edward Teller is a theoretical physicist, and he's one of the people who worked on the atomic bomb along with Oppenheimer and whatnot during uh, the Manhattan Project for World War II. And he is known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. You understand? 
Edward Teller is is basically like Darth Vader's engineer dude. Like, if you can think of Star Wars, you saw Star Wars. Please tell me you saw Star yeah. Wars. Okay, you, you know what the Death Star is, right? Yeah, yeah. A planet-killing machine, right? Well, imagine who designed that thing. You know what I mean? And then they made that movie Rogue One where the guy that designed it is actually a good person. That's why it's so easy to destroy it because he made it easy to destroy it. But the deal is, is that, like, Edward Teller knows how to destroy a planet. This is a guy who sat up and helped the United States develop the atomic bomb. And then he was like, huh, I think we need to figure out a way to kill way more people than just with an atomic bomb. An atomic bomb, we can only kill 100,000 people in two seconds. How about if we kill like five or six million people in two seconds? You know. So he went and, and he and another guy helped develop the hydrogen bomb. In other words, this guy knows how to kill plants. He knows how to deal death and destruction, all right? So when that guy comes up, he would be Darth Vader's best friend. You know, could you imagine the 100-year anniversary of the Death Star and they would have Edward Teller up there or somebody like him who would be like toasting, like, remember Alderaan and how we did that and now look at us now. We're, we've taken over the universe, you know, all thanks to this guy. You know, this guy is sitting here, a planet-killing kind of a guy, and he's telling the oil industry... Don't do that. We can't do that anymore. We have no idea, as Robert Evans notes in his program, what the oil industry did with, with what he told them. You know, or any, One thing we know they, that they didn't do is that they didn't do anything about it. Um, but anyway, so that's 1959. So somebody in 1959, one of the smartest people and arguably one of the most evil people <laughs> we have as a scientist is telling us, like, we have to get off fossil fuels. All right. And then so you would figure that hopefully somebody might listen to them. But evidently they didn't. So the next thing that happened was in 1959. Excuse me. 1961. There's a guy who's on the island of Hawaii, on the, on the big island, on... Mauna Loa, the, uh, the mountain there, and he makes an incredible friggin' discovery. His name is Charles David Keeling. He's an American geochemist, and he produced what is famously known as the Keeling Curve. He showed, he has a graph that shows a period of time that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is actually rising. All right, he can actually show, thanks to some precision instruments of the of that had been made at that time, he was able to measure how much CO two is in the atmosphere right now, and then he can pull a measurement a year later to show you that there's more CO two in the atmosphere, and they can measure out how much more, you know, to show you that it's rising. Now the Earth, uh, like, has. Uh, CO2 content goes up and down as plants, uh, what's the word, R respirate, uh, expire, respire. They're breathing in CO2, and then they expel out oxygen. And in certain times of the, of, uh, the season, in different parts of the country, uh, different parts of the world, in different season, uh, it, the CO2 level will go down because that's when the plants are growing and they're absorbing it more. And then there's other times of the year where they... Don't and so the CO two will be higher. So it's like he, the Earth is breathing. Yeah, it's like the Earth's breathing almost. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to to show that CO two is actually accumulating, that it's getting more and more. And he he went back in time to show that because he started with an eighteen month uh, experiment, where in eighteen months he could show that at the beginning of the first month all the way to the 18th month that there was more CO2 in the atmosphere than when he started. And he put this on a graph and it's very famous in climate science. It's called the Keeling Curve. And it pretty much like sealed the deal. Like you can't argue with this anymore. You know what I mean? In 1965, this information reached the, the Johnson administration. And in a message to Congress, he, they actually talked about this. Um, they have this thing, the President of the United States has this uh, committee called the Science Advisory Committee, 
And they had a special, what's called a special message that they sent to Congress. And in 1965, they put this in that message. Quote, this generation has altered the composition of the atmosphere on a global scale through a steady increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. Unquote. All right. Now, this is supposed to be from Lyndon Johnson, from his administration to the Congress. You know what I mean? Bill Moyers, the famous presidential speechwriter, um, actually wrote this for him um, so they could send it to Congress. Now, what's weird is that Johnson didn't do anything about this. You know, he he actually got briefed on it. He got told that that this is going to be a problem. He got told that, like, look, that you could end up melting the world's just like Edward Teller told him straight up, like this will melt the ice caps and will you know new york city will be submerged you know mm. well johnson gets this information and doesn't do anything and meanwhile you know as we know in the johnson administration he poured everything into the vietnam war and that hellhole of just butchering and horror and so maybe he was just too distracted i don't know but it turns out johnson I guess kind of just ignored. I don't think, because from what I read, Johnson came from Texas, all right, which is where I was born. And Texas uh, has always been the heart of the U.S. oil industry. You know what I mean? And Johnson has lots of friends in the oil industry. So maybe it was easy for him to just not even pay attention to it because he's not, because he's, he's coming from oil country. I don't know. You know, all all we know is that he, he didn't do anything. All right. And then we can we can skip all the way to Ronald Reagan. And this is another thing that I had no idea of until someone found this for me. But a gentleman by the name of John Perlin, P-E-R-L-I-N, he wrote this for cleantechnica.com. You won't believe what I found in the Ronald Reagan president presidential library. And he says, the material I'm about to describe would be forbidden by today's Congress. Here's how I came upon it. I traveled not far from my home to Simi Valley. I'm going to skip that part, but go to this main part. All right. What amazed me was finding a file marked carbon dioxide, climate change, and discovering in its context the publication of the Reagan administration's sponsored two-day gathering, Carbon Dioxide, Science and Consensus, dated September 19th through the 23rd, 1982. In his opening remarks, the Reagan appointee to the Carbon Dioxide Research Division, Frederick A. Kumanoff, stated the executive branch and Congress clearly regard the CO2 issue as one deserving serious, sustained, and systemic investigation. The credit for this lies in the good science and solid research that it has and is being performed. Are you kidding me? Ronald Reagan knew climate change was very serious. Appointed had, I mean, look at this. Like literally had the carbon dioxide and science consensus group in his administration. I didn't know that, you know. Okay. If today's worst case scenario becomes tomorrow's reality, it will be too late to reverse the atmospheric buildup or to um, ameliorate the severe adverse human and environmental impacts of this pollutant. However, if we quickly develop a sufficient research program to provide the necessary answers, there will be still there may still be time to rend the veil or at least keep it from reaching the dimensions of disaster. This is a major goal of the Federal Carbon Dioxide Research Program, and it requires the cooperation of scientists, governmental officials, and citizens. All right. These are Reagan appointees, man, in 1982. I can tell you right now that there are Republicans who absolutely don't believe climate change is real, and if I told them that Reagan had done this, they'd call me a liar. Do you know what I mean? Like, they love that dude. I mean, they, they worship the ground he walked on. I can't wait to do that. I'm going to, you know what? Let me write that down. I am so going to, I don't, most of my conservative friends don't live in this part of the country. Um, they, 
they live in uh, in like either Alaska or parts out west. I gotta find a reason to get a hold of one of them so I can just be like, hey, you know, Ronald Reagan was a big climate adv- uh, advocate. Like, you lying, Lemon? Why are you gonna lie on Reagan? <laughs> but anyway, George Bush. Um, also, George Bush has a speech about climate change. The the first George Bush, you know. So basically, we get all the way, you know, just talking about presidents. Now we're going to go back to the uh, science side of it. Michael Mann in 1999 produces the famous hockey stick. This is a graph that shows the average global temperature over the past 1,000 years. And what it shows is that for 900 years, the average temperature has had very little variation, relatively flat, like the shaft of a hockey stick. But then in the 20th century, the temperature starts to shoot nearly straight up, a really sharp rise like the blade of an ice hockey stick. So that's why they call it the uh, the hockey stick graph. Um, Al Gore used it in his uh, 2005 movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And you can see this thing. You can look it up and see it and whatever. And it's pretty scary because what you're looking at is a, almost not quite a straight line, but generally, you know, a few ups, a few downs, but basically... Not much variation in a certain range of temperature. And then you get to the 20th century and it damn near goes straight up, you know. And it doesn't it doesn't seem to stop. And I see you just pulled it up on the computer and there you can see it. That's that's it. You know? And then this point right here, as you see it starting to shoot up, that's in the yeah, 20th century. Yeah. Right. And so What's important to understand here, and in this particular first episode and segment of this topic that we're talking about, is the fact that there is no denying that climate change is real. As, as I have stated, as I've shown here, going all the way back to the 1820s, people have been pondering you know, what's going on in our atmosphere as far as trapping heat. And through scientific methodology and discovery, we've gotten all the way to the point that we understand that that we are that not only do we understand the process of how heat is trapped in our atmosphere to make us like not a ball of ice like out in space, but we now understand how we are altering this uh, system by adding too much of this heat trapping gas. So there's no debate here. The fact that anyone can get in front of you, if you know anyone, a family member, friends, you know, the pizza delivery driver, whoever, who tells you that climate change isn't real, you can tell them straight to their face that you're wrong and this has already been proven. And anyone who's telling you that it's not proven um, is either ignorant of the facts or they're just straight lying to you. All right. And so... And so in order to start this program and this show on the right leg, I think the first thing we needed to do is establish like, well, what is climate change and how did we find out about it? And now we can move on to later episodes where we start talking about the bastard oil companies and how they got everybody thinking it's not real. You know, how they actually are lying right now to this day. They they own some of our politicians um, how the news media made people dumber, spent the whole 90s making, putting a climate scientist on and then right next to him uh, a climate denier and giving them equal time so that the general public would be confused. So we'll get to that part later. But um, what do you think? What do you think of this? Huh? Yeah, it's... Um I think that, like, for young people especially, like, I can give you that point of view, uh, they might feel that if they don't participate in this society that has been hiding this uh, this huge problem, they're going to feel like everybody is ahead of them. You know, if you start paying attention and caring about the climate, you're going to be left behind because you're not going to be able to consume the technology that you need. You're going to have the same experiences that everybody has. So why would you give up on that when you can just keep going with everybody in society and you're not going to be blamed for that? So I think it's time for us to 
to realize that this problem is bigger than 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 us and that as a society as, a, as a, not only so society but as a person each one of us has to take a little bit of consideration for it like be brave to say that you don't want to participate in certain things that are going to destroy the planet and it's okay for, for you to do that not only it's okay but it's necessary so. amen to that and this show is going to be a whole lot more passionate and crazy than this but but anyway i want to thank you for for being here you're welcome and and listening to me uh you know hopefully not talking too crazy no, not at all man yeah, and laying us out. And let's see if we can't get some other, especially young people, to um, to understand that we got to get into this fight and we got to get it. I mean, there's a bunch of them already in it, you know, and, and I would love to join them and see if we couldn't get more and to uh, talk to some of these students, talk to some of these activists and find out if there's anything that they would want us to talk about any kind of aspects of climate change that they feel are not being discussed enough or that we would have some usefulness to community organizing or groups of people or or whatever. So this is the first step. So now that this is done, I am going to go get drunk and um, smoke, you know what I mean, and pretend that I am not as angry as I really am about this issue. And I hope everybody out there has a great day and or night or night right and uh, you know peace to you and everything you love